God, how we love to confess that you have no rival, you have no equal, that you and you alone are God. Lord, we look to you this morning in the name of Jesus. We remember his promise that he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to lead us into all truth. And so we just ask this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. We are desperate for you. We long for you. We need you. And so, God, we just ask that you would meet us here through the power of your word and the power of your spirit this morning. We love your name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and worship. Amen. In Matthew chapter 14, the disciples of Jesus are on a boat. They had left the shore without Jesus, and on their journey, a life-threatening storm comes upon the sea. All of a sudden, the disciples saw Jesus, and he was walking on the water, and, and they thought he was a ghost, and so they became terrified. But Jesus encouraged them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So one of the disciples, Peter, enchanted by the experience, calls out to Jesus, saying, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus commands him to come, and Peter puts one leg over the edge of the boat, and then another leg over the edge of the boat, and then he puts his full weight out onto the water, and he begins to walk to Jesus on water. Now, what it means to become a Christian is to at some point in our life look to Jesus and say, Lord, I trust you with my life. Command me to do whatever you will, and I will do it. I need you. I trust you, and I'm going to put my life out here where it would sink unless you hold me up. That is what it looks like to put our faith in Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. In fact, to put our faith in his very person. That is the character of saving faith. But what happens next in Matthew chapter 14 is what brings us to our sermon today in Psalm 43. The experience of Psalm 43 is illustrated for us here in the life of Peter. The text in Matthew chapter 14 verse 30 says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. After having the faith to come out onto the water, the wind had captured his attention. As he looked to the wind and the waves, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. Now the wind and the waves were always there, and the water had been as wet as it always was. But with his eyes on Jesus, Peter was able to live above the water. And many of us can understand that feeling. We know what it feels like to, to put our trust in Jesus and to feel like we're walking on the water. But there's another thing that we're also familiar with. We are familiar with the feeling of losing focus on Jesus and the sinking and the drowning and the panic that ensues. And that is why this psalm is so important for our lives. Many of us started so well we started with our eyes on Jesus. We ran out into the storm like crazy people. We took great risks for Jesus, and we enjoyed wonderful communion with Jesus. But then something got our attention. The wind and the waves of life grabbed our eyes away for, from Jesus. And before we know it, we are sinking. 
And the world is yelling out back from the boat saying, here, take, take hold of our rope and we'll pull you back in. And the flesh that we have is scheming and clawing and flailing and doing everything we can to keep ourselves above, above the water. And Satan is whispering in our ear saying, see, God doesn't really love you. If he really loved you, he wouldn't allow wind and waves like this into your life. Psalm 43 teaches us what to do when we are sinking. It exists to push us towards action that is not self-powered, towards reassurance which is not self-grounded, and to drive us away from the sinking boat of the world to a better and more faithful and more joyful lifeline in Jesus Christ. Psalm 43 teaches us how to live by faith and not by sight in the midst of the storm. Jesus isn't sinking. He won't let us drown. And what we need desperately is to get our eyes on him. So let's turn now, and we're going to read Psalm 43 together. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Oh, Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. This is the word of the Lord. So the wind and the waves, which are grabbing at the attention of the psalmist, begin in verses 1 and 2. So first, let's look up in the midst of conflict. Let's look up in the midst of conflict. We get a sense of what the psalmist is experiencing by the first thing he cries out to God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Vindication is what we need when we feel that we have been falsely accused. The psalmist has been, had people who are ungodly, deceitful, and unjust who have brought charges against him. The, the things being said about him are tr untrue, dishonest, and misleading. Now, rather than defend himself or seek to plead his own case, the psalmist cries out to God. He asks for God to plead his case. The psalmist doesn't find his strength in the opinion of others, like many of us do, and he doesn't even find his strength in his own opinion of himself, like modern psychology tries to teach us to do. He has known the power of God. He has walked out on the waves in the strength that God provides. God had come to his aid in the past, and so he is trusting God now that God would come and be his sure and strong defense in this moment. Allie and I have grown to enjoy court case documentaries. Uh, there are some of our family members that give us a hard time for watching ABC's 2020 all the time. What we have learned over the years after watching case after case is that a person's defense attorney is a really important thing. Uh, if you have a bad defense attorney, you might get wrongfully convicted. But if you have a really good defense attorney, you can almost get away with anything. 
The best defense attorneys understand the system. They are detail-oriented, and they know all the rules. They immerse themselves into the lives of the people whom they represent by visiting the crime scene and reenacting potential scenarios and scrutinizing every detail of all of the evidence. To put it plainly, the best defense attorneys invest fully in the person that they are trying to defend. The psalmist knows that nobody understands the justice system of the universe better than God himself. Nobody can uncover the evidence better than the all-knowing God. And nobody is more equipped to be his defense attorney than the judge himself. But the only question is, how far is God willing to go to invest in our case? How can we know that God is going to immerse himself in our defense? Well, when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he proved how much he was willing to invest. When the eternal Son of God took on flesh, we saw that God was willing to immerse himself on behalf of our defense. Christians ought to be the least defensive people on the planet. We should be the best at trusting someone else to defend us. What if we saw every accusation that came into our lives, whether big or small, as an opportunity to practice making our first step trusting God for vindication? Since according to our doctrine, we profess that justification is in Christ alone. So before we go any further, let's ask ourselves, what is our natural reaction when we feel like we've been falsely accused? How do you respond when you feel like you've been misrepresented or misunderstood? What is your first step when the things being said about you are untrue, dishonest, or misleading? Do we even have to say it? We immediately seek vindication by our own means. We argue, we complain, we grumble, and we try to get even. We foolishly elect to represent ourselves, even though we know that only people who are desperate do that. And that is called living by sight. So how do we live by faith? Living by faith means looking up to God as the ultimate judge of the universe. Living by faith means believing that if my spouse is going to understand where I'm coming from, or if my lawyer is going to do a good job for me in court, or if my boss is going to understand why I made that decision that I thought would be the best for our company in that moment, that it's going to be through God's help and not through my well-crafted argument. Living by faith means putting into practice justification in Christ alone. Now, the accusations against the psalmist are really only the surface-level problem in his life. They catch his attention, but aren't the true cause of his sinking. So second, let's look up in the midst of rejection. Let's look up in the midst of rejection. We feel the tension of the psalm and of the Christian life in the very confusion of verse 2. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? The psalmist knows the truth about God, and he knows that God is the all-powerful, sovereign judge of the universe, and still he feels rejected by God. He had gone all in on God. 
He had stepped out of the boat onto the waters by faith. But now in the midst of the winds and the waves, as he looks around at what's going on in his life, he feels that God has turned his back on him. The rejection that he is experiencing from others has caused him to feel rejected by God. And that is true of many of us in our own experiences of rejection as well. In all the lies, the deception, and the anxious thoughts that flood our hearts and minds when bad things happen to us, we begin to think to ourselves, God doesn't really love me. God doesn't even like me. If He did, then this opposition wouldn't exist. If God was really on my side, then He wouldn't let this happen. So the psalmist knows the truth, and yet at the same time, he doesn't know the truth. His first step in the midst of conflict is towards God. But in a moment of raw honesty, he opens up to the fact that he feels that if God really loved him, that he wouldn't let this be happening in his life. The psalmist isn't an atheist. He just feels like an outcast. He hasn't stopped believing that God exists. He's just stopped believing that God could love him. So what does he do? What does he do when he feels rejected by God? How does he engage while living on the edge of belief and unbelief? Well, he cries out for God to send help. If he is going to have his faith restored, then God is going to be the one to restore his faith. He says, oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. It's like he's out on the battlefield and he's on the ground and he's stuck with no way out. And so he calls in an airstrike. And he says, please send help. Come and save me. And he has something particular in mind. He knows that there are two specific things that will help him get out of the current situation that he is in. If the psalmist, though believing in God theoretically, is going to believe in God personally, then he knows that he needs light and truth from God. Now, the psalmist is teaching us through his prayer about the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination is the belief that unless the Holy Spirit of God shines in our hearts to illumine the truth, then it can't and it won't become personal to us. We need the truth. But unless God sends his light to illumine his truth, then we will have a head full of true facts, but no life-changing experience. We are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. We can read the Bible. We can hear it preached. We can memorize it, and we can understand how all of its parts fit together with logical precision. But none of these guarantee that we will actually know the truth. Now, I don't mean to say that we can't know the right answers. I don't mean to say that we can't logically understand the truth. But see, that was not the psalmist's problem. He understands the truth. He just isn't experiencing the truth. He could write a wonderful essay about the love of God. But he doesn't feel like God loves him. He could preach a wonderful sermon about God's sovereignty over suffering. And yet he goes about mourning because of the oppression of his enemies. Think for a second about someone who's blind. You can explain to them what the Grand Canyon is like, and they might be able to understand it, but they can't experience it. You know, you could take them down to the beach, and you could try to explain to them what a sunrise looks like, and they might be able to understand it, but they can't experience it. 
See, any person could potentially understand the logic of the gospel or the philosophy of the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit must give us spiritual sight if we are to experience the saving power of the gospel and the intimate fellowship of the triune God. We need light and we need truth. There may be no greater need for us when we are in the midst of any kind of suffering and we begin to doubt the love of God for us than to pray for God to send out His light and to send out His truth. To pray with Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Light and truth is our prayer because in the midst of suffering, we are prone to deception. Everybody has answers for us in the midst of our suffering. And Satan throws lies at us in the midst of our suffering. And even our own hearts deceive us in the midst of our suffering. We desperately need the truth of God to lead us forward. So what is our natural reaction when we feel rejected by God? Where do we turn when God's love becomes theoretical instead of personal. Our natural reaction is to turn back to those things which Jesus has saved us from. For some of us, that is the self-righteousness of the flesh. For others of us, that is wallowing in the lies of Satan. And for others of us, that is going back to the de deceptive ways of the world. But that is living by sight. So how do we live by faith? Living by faith means crying out to God even when we feel rejected by Him. Living by faith means asking God to give us His truth. And living by faith means trusting that the same God who shines the light of Christ into our hearts at the moment of our very first belief will shine His light into our hearts in our most desperate and fragile moments. Living by faith means reading the Bible by faith. It means listening to sermons by faith. It means memorizing Scripture by faith. Reading, listening, and memorizing because we know it is truth, but doing it by faith because we know that we are utterly dependent upon the light of God, the Holy Spirit of God to come and light up the truth in our hearts. Now, the psalmist doesn't just pray for the things that he desires for God to send to lead him, namely light and truth. He also prays for the location to which he desires for God to lead him. What started on the surface as a need for vindication has led to a much deeper problem. So third, let's look up in the midst of sorrow. Let's look up in the midst of of sorrow. See, it isn't just that he feels rejected by God. He also says, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He knows that something is not right. He knows that he's not feeling the way that he should feel. But the psalmist is not content to find his joy in anything less than God himself. He is not going to fake it. He's not going to take shortcuts. He's not going to just slap a smile on his face. He is trusting in God and God alone to lead him out of his sorrows. Here at Palmetto Shores Church, we have a great uh, team of worship leaders. They've already led us this morning 
to sing and worship the Lord. They are good musicians who love Jesus, and week after week, they lead us to praise God. But what we have to always remember is that the true worship leader is the Holy Spirit. He leads us into God's presence. He shines his light onto the face of Jesus. And he is the only one who can really lead us to worship God. And that is why the psalmist prays, Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. He knows that what he really needs is to enter into God's presence. He's ready to run into God's house. He's ready to put a a sacrifice of thanksgiving on the altar. But he is willing to wait on God, even for his own happiness. Could he make himself feel better? Could he find a quick fix? Could he give himself false assurances? He could. But then he would be forfeiting supreme joy. Only God truly satisfies. And whether he feels it in this moment or not, God is his exceeding joy. Over the last few weeks, our schedule has changed, as I'm sure it has for many of you. I'm eating every meal at home, and almost every meal that we eat, we're preparing for ourselves at home. And I have found that not even just a few times, I have ruined my dinner by snacking in the mid-afternoon. I feel the hunger, and even though I know there is a wonderful meal being prepared for me, I tell myself, I'll only have a few Cheez-Its. I'll only eat a small bowl of cereal. I'll just have one banana with some peanut butter. And the next thing I know, I have filled up on snacks. And then when it's time to eat the wonderful, delicious, appetizing meal, I have no appetite. I have squandered my ability to enjoy dinner because I have filled myself up on snacks. Oh, how many of us forfeit the exceeding joy of God because we weren't willing to wait for his light and his truth to lead us into his presence. We fill up on lesser joys. We fill up on quick fixes. We give ourselves false assurances. We squander our ability to be truly satisfied in God because we had so stuffed ourselves with whatever would just make us feel good. And that is living by sight. So how do we live by faith? Living by faith means patience, waiting, and potentially even grieving. Living by faith doesn't come by turning off our feelings. Living by faith means keeping the receptors of our feelings so wide open that we can be ready to feast on God when he comes to us. So many of us spoil the enjoyment of God, of God our exceeding joy, because we've either found ways to numb our receptors or we have stuffed ourselves so full of junk that we have no room left for him. We think that by numbing the pain, we are fixing the problem, but we are actually just creating a worse problem for ourselves. We become numb to God, the only real and true remedy to our sorrow. Living by faith means settling for nothing less than God himself to be our all-satisfying joy. Now, as we can see up to this point, 
the psalmist is still praying. He is still waiting. He's taken all the right steps. He's looked up to God for vindication in the conflict. He's looked up to God for light and truth in the midst of feeling rejected. And he has looked up to God for joy in the midst of the sorrow. And still, his soul is disturbed. So finally, let's look up in the midst of despair. Let's look up in the midst of despair. One of the things I love about this psalm is that it teaches us that prayer is not merely a therapeutic exercise. The psalm shows us exactly what we must do to prepare ourselves to receive God, but all these steps did not take the place of God himself. Praying doesn't just make us feel better because talking out loud is a good release. It is God himself who must come and defend. It is God himself who must come and deliver. It is God himself who must come and delight our souls. But that is not to say that the psalmist does not acknowledge his part in it. Remember, we are the ones who take our eyes off of Jesus. We are the ones who allow the wind and the waves to grab our attention. We are to blame for our own sinking. So while we are totally dependent upon God for him to take our gaze and to put it back upon him, we are responsible for where we put our hope. And that is why the psalmist turns from questioning, him, from questioning God to questioning himself. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Notice that the psalmist has turned inward, but not to find resources there. He has not turned inward to try to muster up the strength to get over his problems on his own. He has turned in so that he might look up. His final step in putting his hope in God was acknowledging that it wasn't. The reason that the accusations of others had rocked him in this way, and the reason that his circumstances had made him feel rejected by God, was because his hope wasn't actually securely anchored in God. When Allie and I lived in Raleigh when I was in seminary, I worked for a company that did outdoor events. And as a part of our setup for the events, we used tailgate tents. We were instructed to always stake down all four legs of the tent, but if I'm honest, many of us felt like that was just a formality. So we would typically only stake down two or maybe sometimes three of the legs. And time after time, event after event, it was no big deal. But then one day, a big gust came. And within seconds, there were eight tailgate tents flipping end over end, and people were running and scurrying and dodging in panic. Many of us feel like we have strong faith. We think that we have put our hope in Jesus. But the reality is, the wind just hasn't blown very hard on our lives. And as soon as a serious storm comes, we find out that our faith is actually weak. We find out that our hope wasn't really anchored in God himself. See, when we draw despairing conclusions from our circumstances, it shows that our hope was actually in our circumstances. When we feel rejected by God when something bad happens, it shows that our hope was actually anchored in the good life that we had made for ourselves. When we say things like, but I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. 
we showed that our hope was really in our self-righteousness. When we go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, we show that our joy really wasn't in God himself, but in the good things that God had given us. And that is living by sight. So how do we live by faith? Living by faith means letting God ground us, the God who is immovable. Living by faith means trusting God with our future. Living by faith means actually, practically, and experientially believing in the truths of the gospel so that we can join with the Apostle Paul and say from the heart, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When we live by faith, we can acknowledge our frailty because we know that our strength for life is not in ourselves, but in the God of our strength. When we live by faith, our circumstances have no power over us. Now, my goal at this point is for you to be thinking, you keep telling us to look up, but how do I look up? So here's some application. If I'm honest, this is the mystery of Christianity. God is the one who must do it for us, and yet he calls us to do certain things. We are totally dependent upon him, and yet he still calls us to depend on him in an active way. So I want to give you three things, three things to prepare ourselves to receive God. This is how we live our lives looking up. This is how we fight to live by faith. First, fight to live by faith by praying to God. We display a trust in God merely by calling out to him. Even if we are as honest as the psalmist and say things like, why have you rejected me? The reason prayer is always an act of faith is because in prayer, we acknowledge that God exists. In prayer, we acknowledge that we need him. And in prayer, we move towards God, even if we are complaining and doubting and worrying. Uh, Very practically, last week, we learned that if we want to hear God's voice, then we simply have to read the Bible out loud. So for today, if you're not sure how to pray, then just begin reading the Psalms out loud and let God teach you how to pray. We fight to live by faith when we take our first step towards God in all things through prayer. Second, fight to live by faith by preaching to yourself. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but in verses 1 through 4, the psalmist is talking to God. Every word is aimed at him, But in verse 5, he begins to talk to himself. We must pray because we are dependent upon God in all things, even in illuminating truth to our hearts. But 
we must also preach to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves and say, come on, soul, put your hope in God. God is trustworthy. You downcast spirit, look at that bloody cross. Do you doubt God's love when you look at that cross and look at that empty tomb? Do you doubt God's ability to vindicate you while you look at that empty tomb? Don't be foolish, soul, by looking at the wind and the waves. Fix your eyes on God, and he will never let you sink. The first person that we talk to is God, but the second person that we need to talk to is ourselves. We fight to live by faith when we pray to God, and we fight to live by faith when we preach to ourselves. Third, fight to live by faith by preparing to praise. When you have prayed to God for him to send you light, and you have preached the truth to yourself, then prepare to praise. Join the psalmist and pull out your guitar from under the bed, dust it off, tune it up, start doing your vocal exercises, get out the old music sheets. See, see it right there in verse 4? The psalmist says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God my God. The God whom you are praying to and the God whom you have preached yourself to yourself about, he is about to rescue you. He is going to vindicate you. He is going to satisfy your soul. And when he does, it's time to praise. When he sends his light and truth and his love fills your heart, it's time to sing. It's time to dance. It's time to kill the fattened calf and celebrate. It's time to go in to the altar and make a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to our Savior. We fight to live by faith by praying to God. We fight to live by faith by preaching to ourselves. And we fight to live by faith by preparing to praise. In Matthew chapter 14, after Peter has stepped out of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. And every one of us can see ourselves in Peter in that moment, distracted, afraid, and captured by the storm around us. We begin to sink. But let me show you why looking up is our best and our only response. As Peter begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And there it is. There is the essence of Psalm 43 right there. And this is what the text says next in Matthew chapter 14. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The storm may cause us to doubt. The wind and the waves might allure our eyes away from Jesus. Our faith might shrink down to the size of a mustard seed. But Jesus will never let us sink. Jesus was rejected by God so that you and I would never be. Jesus was drowned into the sea of our sin so that once and for all we could see that he would never let us sink. He is our Savior. He is our hope. Surely, He is the God of our strength. And what we all need desperately is to look up and to get our eyes on Him. God, what can we do this morning except for look up to You? 
we all at times in our life have felt like we've been treated unjustly. We all every day live in the, the battle of our own hearts where we're being accused and so we try to defend ourselves and we try to stick up for ourselves. God, I just pray that you would release us today, allow us to live in the freedom of your vindication, of your justification, that, that you stand in our defense. And God, maybe more than anything, we pray that you would send your light and send your truth and let them lead us. God, the world is trying to lead us and Satan is trying to lead us and even our own hearts are deceiving us and trying to lead us away from you. And so we ask for you to come. Light your truth up in our hearts so that we are filled with your joy and God, we are ready to praise. We are ready to make a sacrifice of thanksgiving to you. We are ready to sing and dance and shout and celebrate when you come. So Lord, we humbly ask, come, light up our way, and we'll praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.